really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome once again to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more, all about the world of rugby. As always, I am your host, David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, you know what? I would love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast, and you can always just drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. So, among other things... This weekend began the 2023 Six Nations Tournament, one of the highlights of the rugby calendar every single year. Let's dive right into all the action. So our current updates this week, and as most of you know, I'm sure my partner and I actually play in a rock band. And, you know, slowly coming out of the pandemic, it's been an uphill battle to set up gigs for sure. The good news is, you know, at last... We've booked two for the spring and early summer, I guess really just spring. Uh, We've been practicing a lot more lately. We've gotten back into writing original songs, which has been fantastic. And we've been itching for another chance to play out. Our first ever show was in June of 2015. But the last few years, things have been scarce for obvious reasons. So if you are in the greater Boston area on May 20th or June 16th, Drop me a line and I will send along the details and you can come check it out. Uh, I know that's still months and months away, but I, for one, am psyched. It's too good. It's too good. People have to know. Well, Isa, more rugby is always good. So I'd say for a change, we do have good news this week. So quoting here from geocities.com slash rugby pass, by the way, as, I, as I'm, you know, quoting this article, just notice all the incredibly sort of dim mistakes. like. You'd think Rugby Pass would have a way to, you know, hire an editor, somebody who could actually check to make sure sentences are complete, not fragments and so on. Anyway, quote, in the shadows of the Guinness Six Nations this weekend also marks the opening of Rugby Europe Championship, the on-field drama and excitement of the second-best international rugby competition in the Northern Hemisphere might not exactly rival what's on display at the Six Nations. For some reason, that's the end of a sentence. Um, However, it most definitely deserves more attention and will have many insights to offer, especially in a World Cup year and with three of its participants also competing in the Global Rugby Showpiece this autumn in France. The format of Rugby Europe's premier competition has changed significantly for 2023 and no longer mirrors that of the Six Nations. Up until last year, five rounds of fixtures were played parallel to the Six Nations, with each of the six uh, REC participants facing all other competitors once, while home field advantage alternated year after year. Now, the competition is merely held on the same weekends as Six Nations, in other words, paralleling it, I think they just said that, but has been entirely revamped, with now eight participating national teams decided, uh, divided into two pa- uh, pools of four. After three round-robin matches, the top two teams of each pool will determine the winner in two rounds of knockout games, culminating in the grand final at a neutral venue on March 18th. Meanwhile, the bottom two sides of each pool will play two rounds of knockout fixtures for fifth place. The three newly promoted teams are Belgium, Poland, and Germany. They will face tough 
proposition against the more established nations, while Russia may, uh, remains shunned due to the country's ongoing war in Ukraine. The current makeup of the league will be kept until the end of the 2024 championship, when the worst performing side of the combined 2023-2024 table will be relegated to Rugby Europe's second-tier tournament called the Trophy. So, why am I bringing all this up? Well, because I don't think I'm going to have a chance to cover it, or at least not this weekend, but I don't want to ignore it. But, you know, with Six Nations, a URC fixture, a full slate of top 14 games this weekend, I just wasn't going to have a chance to watch any of it. However, the action from this weekend, I will attempt to catch up on during the week. And next weekend, when I, all I see are the three Six Nations matches, I should be able to tune in and catch you all up as well. Some of these teams I've literally never seen play. So I, for one, am psyched. So moving on to our thoughts of the week. And you know what? Last week, I used this very segment to talk about how much fun the HSBC 7s has been this year. Of course, I also talked about the USA actually, you know, winning sometimes. And the men in particular then proceeded to poop the bed completely in Sydney. So, yeah. In any event, I did end up watching both legs from the last two weeks and figured it was worth checking in after four or five rounds, depending. So for the women, it has been four rounds, with the Hong Kong le uh, leg only for the men, for reasons completely beyond me. In any event, New Zealand are very much on top, grabbing silver in Dubai, then gold in Cape Town, Hamilton, and Sydney. Australia, my new favorite squad, they're in second place overall, though their, their, their current trajectory is worrying they, they got gold in dubai silver in cape town then bronze in hamilton and a surprising fifth place finish at home in sydney uh the usa is tied with them on points but are ranked third i imagine by virtue of having won a gold which the americans haven't done uh yet uh so anyway the fourth and fifth spots are france then ireland again with france's silver giving them the higher spot significantly below that though tied at 36 points are fiji and great britain then it's japan spain canada and brazil china nabbed two points as the invitational side in dubai papua new guinea got a point each in both legs quote down under unquote as i've heard them call it while uh, South Africa are at the very bottom with a single point earned in Cape Town. Yikes. So for the men's side, it's been five rounds, obviously. It's again New Zealand on top, who appear headed on the opposite trajectory of the Aussie women, failing to medal in Hong Kong, but then nabbing bronze, two silvers, and a gold this weekend. South Africa are second with a gold in Dubai and a silver in Sydney. The next five spots are a logjam. Samoa and France tied at 68 points. Fiji and Argentina tied at 67. And my USA Eagles just behind with 66. Australia are the only other team in the 60s. And they're trailed by Ireland, Great Britain, Uruguay, Kenya, Spain, and Canada. Tonga, invitationals for Hamilton and Sydney, had a fair showing and garnered 12 points, just two fewer than Canada. Then Japan are in serious danger of relegation with just six. And it's Uganda and Hong Kong at the very bottom after their invitational performances in Dubai and Cape Town and Hong Kong, respectively. Uh, yes, <laughs> I realize as I say it out loud, that was confusingly phrased. Anyway, the next leg, of course, is coming back here to the United States where the series will descend on Los Angeles at the end of this month. As I said before, if you have Peacock, which is quite cheap, you can catch all the action and I can't recommend it enough. And yes, you're welcome. I'm not going to end this segment with saying I am psyched. Okay. 
that brings us to our reviews. And you'd think that we'd be leading with the Six Nations, but there's actually a ton of stuff happening. So we're actually going to start off with the URC. That's right. If you recall, there are three URC uh, fixtures from much earlier this season that need to be made up on Saturday. Featured the first, it was Sharks at home in Durban to welcome the sputtering Stormers. I had erroneously thought this one was happening on Friday, so that was a little bit disappointing for me that day. Um, also disappointing has been Stormers' points conceded and turnovers won. Two stats strongly indicative of the uneven success they've enjoyed this year. I mean, are the reigning champs in serious trouble is what I wrote down. Either way, Sharks have been looking pretty good, but as the players ran out, the comms said cryptically, as is so often the case in the URC, you won't be seeing any Springboks in the Sharks squad today. I mean, why not? I wish they would elaborate sometimes. Quote, I think Jakob's got some sunscreen on that head of his. They, unquote, they said of World famous uh, World Cup famous official Jakob Piper. It's absolutely boiling out there. Yeah, it's kind of cool to go down there where it's a completely different season. So... I've been saying here how weird the Stormers have looked over the past several rounds, but guess what? They were back in a big way. Uh, Marty LeBoc looked to be in absolute control of the contest right from the start. Sharks looked almost stunned how hard and fast the scoring was coming their way. More LeBoc later in just a minute. Uh, quote, it's a rout at the moment. The Sharks are in real trouble here, unquote, opined the comms, and it was true. They did score right at the break. But it was really an all-Stormers day. Just some beautiful tries being run in by the visitors. This one got way out of hand. Stormers leading 7-43 to 43 before even the three-quarter mark. Even the comms were like, what the F is going on? I don't think they said that. 19-46 uh, to 46 was the blowout total. Good news for Edinburgh fans indirectly there. Uh, and just to quickly get back to LeBoc, he was an absolute assassin off the tee. As I said, he looked like a puppeteer the way he controlled this game. On the other hand, he missed kicking to touch not once, not twice, but three times right in a row. And the comms were all over him for it. They described this match as an audition for the Springboks. And I don't know if he made the case for or against himself. I guess time is going to tell. So switching gears, it was time for the top 14. That's right. If I hadn't been compulsively checking, I probably wouldn't have realized that the top 14 stayed in full swing this weekend, which is something I frankly find baffling. I mean, I, I mean, I guess they have to get through 26 rounds by all the gods, so I, I guess they got to shoehorn them in whenever they can, right? In any event, in typical style, we had six Saturday fixtures and just the one on Sunday. We started everything off with Toulouse versus Bayonne. I have to say, it's been several weeks since I've been forced to complain about how freaking terrible blow rugby is, but guess what? We were right back to it. Uh, the replay for this match was actually the final 15 minutes of the Sharks versus Stormers match, after which was a blank screen for two full hours. So yes, once again, great job. Uh, after the fact, as always, I did look it up. Your total was a tight 21 to 16. Gee, I sure am glad I missed that one. Anyway. Poe versus Rossing was next. The home team looked de determined and were up over the supposed favorites 19 to 12, headed into the locker room for the break. But in the second half, things burst wide open. And after a flurry, it was a two score affair, 33 to 19. Rassing showed some lovely little soft inside passing skills as they tried to whittle away at that score, but it was like taking down a mountain, a pebble at a time when full time was called. It was a good old-fashioned double-up, 38-19 to 19 for Lowly Poe. Nice one, that. Wow. 
So Claremont versus Cast was another close one early on. The sides locked at 10 through, I mean, maybe 25 minutes, I think it was. Uh, it was 17 to 16 at the half and 27 to 23 by the 55 minute mark. Just a ton of action on both sides. Really fun. Uh, by the way, if you're a fan of, you know, gore, go ahead and check out the 57 minute mark where I'll just leave it at that. You can find out for yourself if you're so inclined. Yikes. Anyway, with a quarter hour to go, it was 27 to 26 still. Uh, so great. And in the sweeping reins, Claremont finally found a foothold. A red card to the visitors truly put their backs against the wall. And with just over a minute left, it was Yato for the insult to injury try. It was a big win for Claremont. 41 to 26. Wowzers. Uh, La Rochelle versus Lyon was another unwatchable mess. Not because of the rugby, but because the audio and the video weren't synced up. Whew. That was unfortunate because it appears it was a really good match with La Rochelle trailing until it was just a quarter hour remaining, but that advantage was short-lived. Leon looking determined on the road. The hosts got one last shot right at the very end, but, you know, some sloppy handling let them down. It was a rare victory from a, for an away team in the top 14, 16-20. Nice one for Leon. Then, Brie versus Perpignan. This one didn't suffer from losing too many top players to the Six Nations, but, you know, turned into a serious match as things unfolded. Really liked it. Great to see Nick Sanchez out there. He's got to be an all-time favorite of mine. What a class act. In any event, things were locked at 10 starting the second half, and I found myself rooting for Perpignan a bit. Why? That kit, man, so good. I, I feel like somehow I've never seen that particular uniform before. I mean, it, it can't be, but... I don't know. It, it is a thing of beauty. Um, as soon as I'm done recording, I'm absolutely going to go look for it online. Just very, very nice. So sweet. That said, uh, Breve led most of the way thanks to the aforementioned Sanchez boot, but a penalty try to the visitors kept them right in it. With just five minutes to go, Perpignan, they tied it up at 22, then got a conversion for the lead, setting the stage for a great finish with their shirtless band of supporters pounding on a, away on their drums 22 to 24 was how it would end a second away win in a row what a weird week so great so montpellier versus toulon had the comms start us off by saying two teams that should be in the top eight but aren't which was i don't know painfully apt uh, this one was yet another smasher. Points hard to come by and the lead on a seesaw. It was 18 to 17 for the home team with a quarter hour remaining on the clock. And by the end, I mean, it couldn't have been closer. Well, OK, well, technically it could have been. Uh, but another road win, another road win and a crazy weekend, 18 to 20 for Toulon. And then finally, on Sunday, it was Stade Francais versus bordeaux uh, Begla. This one was going to close out the round stead, had only lost once at home this year, while my schizophrenic Border Beagles had won just once away from home. So this one looked like it would be very, very tough. Indeed, the visitors missed two kicks just in the first quarter, the comms underlining the importance of taking every single point on offer. Quote, not a lot of flow to this game, unquote, they accurately reported, with the visitors three points, the sum total headed towards halftime. The team is getting to three to six at the break. As we enter the final quarter of play, the Parisians took their first lead of the day, a perfect three for three on penalty kicks to that point. Zach Holmes missed a third time for Bordeaux, failing to tie things up. And you could just, you could see the frustration taking hold inside the players. <laughs> Quote, oh, 
a fight's broken out. Unquote, they said casually, while the ref simply chose to ignore it. I mean, it was a it was a, an on the floor, grabbed the by, guy by the throat, and like, I mean, I guess there was no punches thrown. Anyway, right at the end, Bordeaux had a golden opportunity to score the first try of the match and steal a last second win, but a pass <laughs> simply bounced off a clearly unsuspecting teammate, and poof, that was that. Quote, the ugliest victory of the year for Stade Francais, unquote, shouted the comms. I could not disagree. 12 to 6 in a trialless affair. Okay, before we get to the gigantic elephant in the room, the under-20s Six Nations also kicked off this weekend. And you know what, my friends? I'm going to level with you. I know nothing about any of the under-20 teams. Uh, I don't think I have the RAM to think about it too much. Um, I did at least check the scores. Uh, England, of course, broke the hearts of the Scottish, winning 41 to 36. Wales went down heavily to Ireland, 27 to 44. And speaking of heartbreak, ooh, Italy had a shot at their first ever win over France in this competition, but missed a conversion to go down 27 to 28. If you manage to watch and you have any young players I should keep an eye on, you know, just please reach out to me and let me know. I would be keen to know more. Okay, my friends, it is time. It was Six Nations round one for 2023. It was finally upon us. This weekend marked the dramatic first round of this storied competition. We began Saturday morning with Wales hosting Ireland at the Principality. So I joined the Blood Mud Podcast League on uh, Fanzo, you know, this little app where you can predict the scores. Um, so each round of Six Nations will include my own likely dim-witted predictions uh, for our first game i predicted ireland winning and said the margin would be 12 uh, anyway once again i was super happy to discover that philippa tuddyett was on comms she is the absolute best it's always the perfect combination of either you know a combination of like agreeing with her or feeling enlightened by every comment she makes sometimes at the same time. I mean, plus let's face it. I could listen to her, read the dictionary and be perfectly happy. What a voice. So the principality, it was rocking at the start, the fireworks shrouding the open moment moments in a misty fog, but right off the bat, it looked like it was going to be all Ireland. Okay. I've decided I have to lead with this. Johnny Sexton, I, I've spent quite a bit of time complaining about him on this show, and I think that's been fair considering his overall demeanor, the absurd crap he gets away with constantly in terms of, you know, giving lip to the officials. However, what I haven't bothered to mention is this. He is incredibly good. Like, I think it's fair to say he's one of the very best. So he continues to pose problems for Ireland since they basically have no plan of succession and are completely reliant on an aging and oft injured fly half. But when they do have him, oh my word, he's so damn good. What was on display in this one for me was his rugby IQ. He's he's just clearly seen the game at sort of a, a whole different level to everyone around him. At one point, he got absolutely creamed by a tackle, which jarred the ball loose. And as he's in the process of being smashed to the turf, he was already signaling to the officials that the ball had been knocked forward, as it was therefore a knock-on by Wales. It's almost like he's watching the game from somewhere above and seeing every angle and every little detail. He, I'm just going to say it, he's a rugby genius. 
Okay, never thought I'd spend so much time talking him up. That's enough of that. In this one, it mattered, and he led his team to a thorough up-and-down beating of their hosts. Uh, Stuart McCloskey, he was an absolute menace out there as well. While it was hard to pick up positives from anyone for the for the host, especially in the first half, Philippa, in her typical classy style, said Liam Williams was, quote, a bit too casual out there, unquote, and as usual, she was spot on. There were tons of Irish fans on hand, by the way, made them, making themselves known with every positive play. And quick side note, halftime in these games, for me, is always a bizarre occurrence because like the video feed, they're showing all the highlights and the replays that they're undoubtedly commenting on. Like this is, you know, I've seen a halftime before. The, the analysts come on and they show you the replays and they talk about what we're seeing, but there's no audio. It's just a series of like random clips for a good 10 minutes, maybe 12 sometimes. Kind of eerie in a way. Anyway, Wales. They got some momentum second half, but not nearly enough to make it a contest. They were just never really in it. Um, Rio Dyer, he was a bit of a standout for the Welsh. He is really very special. But just as I wrote that, of course, Tipperick blew a pass to him, just bungled it and spoiled a great opportunity. Story of the day for Wales. So a friend of mine moved to England several years ago, and despite not caring one bit about sports, she was actually watching this at a pub with some mostly Irish friends. We were texting back and forth, and late on, she correctly observed that Wales had found some renewed energy, but, you know, it was too late at that stage. As Liam Williams went off for a yellow card, I wrote, game over in the old notes, and soon after, as Ireland got in again to make it 10-34, to it was clear the 10-year Cardiff curse was well and truly dispelled for the Irish. I'm very curious how Welsh fans are feeling about Gatland now, as opposed to like two weeks ago. It felt like Wales left a ton of opportunities out there, but it also felt like this is exactly the team we've kind of been watching for a while. So the question for me was, has Warren, you know, not had enough time yet to work his magic? Or is this simply where Wales are at the moment? Quote, it's been a grim old 80 for Wales, unquote, said the comms, and that was a nice way to put it. Ireland are a true powerhouse right now. They were doing it all on both sides of the ball. Call it recency bias, but at the moment, Ireland and France just seem way ahead of the other four teams in this competition. 10-34 to 34 was the final in a real and true spanking. So next up, of course, was England welcoming Scotland back once again to the confines of Twickenham. As you all know, I am a Scotland supporter, but even so, I admit, I didn't see them upsetting England on their home turf. You know, I was very much hoping to be proven wrong, for sure, but my official prediction was England by 10, and yes, the answer is yes. I felt very guilty about that. So, I don't know. I watched this game. It was almost like I was in a daze. It was truly odd. Like, whenever Scotland got behind... I, I didn't feel that oh-so-familiar sense of panic. I don't know if that's because I somehow sensed something was different, or if I had simply just been overserved at that point, but this felt like a new Scotland team to me. As things unfolded, this ended up being, I mean, one of my all-time favorite matches. It wasn't always pretty, and certainly Finn didn't have his best day, but in a way, that's one of the things that made it so good. The, the fact of the matter is Scotland went to Twickenham and defeated England, but they didn't play their best game by quite a margin, I'd say. So as I said, Finn put in uh, he put a couple of kicks out on the full. There were drops that should have been handled. There was poor communication here and there. 
they basically made a series of the types of errors you just simply can't get away with at test level, but still had enough confidence, enough skill, and enough heart to see it through to the end. England weren't in top form either. But then again, is this their new top form? It seems like it's been a while. I'm uh, I'm not sure they've been the same team since beating New Zealand to advance to the 2019 Rugby World Cup final. Um, I don't know what's wrong with them. Anyway, naturally, Duhan has been getting a lot of the talking points, even in the you know the 48 hours after the fact, and with good reason. I have to assume if you're listening to this, you already watched this match, so and so would have seen his. Uh, well, here's one of the best tries you'll ever see. Actually, hold my beer performance. And frankly, a lot of people weren't sure what Scotland would get out of him on the day, but it turned out he was good for not one but two absolute worldies, just mind-blowing stuff from him. The game itself, it was incredibly tense and intense from the opening moments. Right around the quarter-hour mark, it was Tupalatu with a cute little grubber just, just through the gap, a gift try to Hugh Jones, you could tell there were a lot of Scotland supporters on hand by the roar that accompanied that first score of the day, but it was less than 10 minutes later that Marcus Smith pinpointed one in the corner to Max Malins. Quote, how much more battering can this Scottish defense take? Unquote, queried the comms. And fortunately, the answer turned out to be quite a lot. And then, oh, there it was, that first Duhan try. I could watch it 62,000 times and may have already. Uh, the bit I hadn't really noticed was his switching hands mid-carry to better free up his right arm to fend off Alex Dombrandt. No simple feat, that. So all of this was before a half hour even had elapsed, and there was quite a bit of carrying on in my house. I mean, well, well, me. I, I was carrying on quite a bit. Naturally, the seesaw came back the other way, Malin's getting a brace, and then it was clothesline Farrell slotting three to give England the lead at halftime. Saw, uh, quick side note, I thought Van Portfleet acquitted himself much better than he did the last couple of times out. Um, I just don't think he gets rattled so much the way he used to in the last few tests. Uh, in the second half, it was Genge getting on the board first. And this is usually where fans like myself start to get really tightly wound up, like his signs are all pointing the wrong way if you're a Scotland fan. However, it was Ben White next over the line to keep things close. Townsend, dangerously close to smiling in the coach's booth. And then right towards the end, I believe it was Richie Gray. I'm pretty sure it was Richie Gray with an oh-so-soft mini pass to Duhon, swooping it up the left wing. And I think the number of players who could have had the finishing power he showed there can be counted on one hand, maybe all time. I think that moment might have been the scariest all day as Duhan, you know, he's shown a tendency to overestimate his own ability to get over the try line rather than just trying to offload it or find uh, some support. But in this moment, neither heaven nor earth would stop him. That little extra slam down the sound of the lid being slammed on England's hope for their first effort under new management. Just a bonkers try, however you slice it. Another very random side note here, <laughs> Duhan, he's so good. And obviously he's also like, you know, 1940s pinup model handsome as well. So I always kind of secretly worry that my partner will spot him as we're watching a game and just immediately pick up stakes and just leave to hop a plane to Scotland. However, as they showed his chiseled features over and over in glorious slow motion, she remarked, that guy looks like kind of a meathead. 
which was music to my ears. Uh, by the end, I was just completely elated. Scotland retaining the Calcutta Cup for yet another year, downing their ancient foes on their home turf, 23-29 to when all was said and done. What a way to close out the first day of 2023 Six Nations. And then, of course, on Sunday, we traveled to Stadio Olimpico for Italy to take on powerhouse France. My prediction for this one was not pretty. I saw France handily winning by, uh, I said, 23 points. For the game itself, France scored within four minutes. Omens all ill for the hosts. Thomas Ramos, he scored their second try just before the 20-minute mark. And then, you know, on that slow-mo high-def replay, you could see him spit on Capuazzo as he lay on the ground, then step on his toe, elbow him in the tailbone, and then kick him in the left nut before dotting the ball down for the score. Don't worry, though. The resulting bans will be reduced to negative two weeks. He'll actually get two extra games where he doesn't have to face defenders at all, somehow. Okay, I might have made that last bit up. So, putting on my Captain Obvious hat, France are so freaking good. I don't think I appreciated how good, how how vicious they are on defense. I mean, it's frightening how hard it is to do anything against them. Their offense is clearly top level, but I, for one, didn't adequately understand how good they are on the other side of the ball. DuPont was his usual, holy crap, how is that guy that strong self? Well, Intimac was causing the comms to compare him to Tom Brady, which is gross. Anyway, random side note, Fabien Galtier is always wearing those sunglasses, which makes me wonder what he does when it's actually like really sunny out. I very much want him to own another much bigger pair of sunglasses that just slides on top of the normal ones. Someone please, please make that meme for me. Quote, Italy are really going to need something before the half, unquote, said the comms. And on cue, it was Capuazzo getting a beauty in the corner to make it 11-19. to 19. They continued, quote, Italy are ripping up the way you're supposed to play international rugby. They're committing suicide, but it's so entertaining, unquote. Uh, at that point, I hoped a technician would arrive soon to, you know, turn down the hyperbole meter just a notch or two. Uh, the Azuri, they added a penalty to make it 14-19, to 19, headed into the break to the delight of the faithful on hand. By halftime, France had already committed nine penalties to Italy's two, but the standout stat had to be 24 missed tackles by the home team. It, you know, it was close to being a missed tackle for every two successful tackles made. Yikes! Early in the second half, Italy had a lovely driving ball right outside the in-goal area, and France continued to commit unnecessary penalties, getting a yellow card and conceding a penalty try. We officially had a contest as we entered the final quarter of play. Italy, I swear this is true, went ahead by two. The place went completely freaking bonkers. France did go back up, but with under a minute, it was Italy, deep in French territory, looking for a brand new world. I was so excited after the clock had gone red. It was yet another penalty against the visitors, but off the line out. Something went went wrong on the floor. They didn't even explain. The long whistle blast let us know. The dream was over for now. 24 to 29 was your final what a Weekend. Well, by that music, you'll know it's time 
for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. This week, the award goes to, I mean, you guessed it, Duhan Van de Merva Duhan. You earned your Superman nickname up and down all day this weekend, potentially salvaging a gut punch loss and turning it into the game of the year for Scotland fans everywhere. You got in some good work on defense as well, which was like icing on the cake, as the two tries you scored both immediately went into the annals of Scottish rugby lore. Mr. Vandemerva, you single-handedly popped the air out of the English balloon, delivered that most precious of all commodities, a Scotland win away to England. Duhan, my dear friend, congratulations to you, for you are this week's Diamond in the Ruck award winner. Well done, and thank you, sir. Okay, my friends, time for updates and previews. And of course, it's obviously going to be round two in this year's Six Nations tournament next weekend, which again means two fixtures on Saturday and the one on Sunday. This week, it'll be Ireland versus France getting us started. Oh my God, that's going to be good. Uh, That'll be a clash, obviously, of two of rugby's strongest teams. I mean, if you say, if you told me right now, oh, I know how that's going to go, you are lying. Anyway, that match will be at Aviva in Dublin. I'm already chomping at the bit for that one. Um, that one will be followed by Scotland back at Murrayfield to welcome Wales. <laughs> Again, I haven't the foggiest notion what to expect from that one. And then, for whatever reason, the Italians are playing again on Sunday, traveling to Twickenham to face a semi-newfangled England. I have to say, if, if you're a listener here, you'll know I am frequently touting what I see as real progress for Italy in general, especially over the last 15 17 months, something like that. Um, But let's be fair, you know, barring a massive, massive upset, they weren't likely to beat France this weekend. They're not likely to beat England next weekend away. Why are we making this a Sunday game every week? The format is, you know, it kind of goes, and here's some very, very technical analysis for you. It kind of goes, is there some reason this is the way it always works? It's very strange. If you have an answer, my friends, as always, please drop me a line and enlighten me. Also, as alluded to earlier, there will be Rugby Europe Championship action. It'll be Germany hosting Spain, Belgium versus Romania, Netherlands versus Georgia, and Poland versus Portugal. Portugal. Anyway, Really looking forward to getting stuck into that competition, as they say, and I will update you all as I can. Well, my friends, that does it for another week. And it feels, doesn't it feel like the rugby calendar is going like double time this year? We're already at Six Nations, just weeks away from Major League Rugby and Super Rugby Pacific. Obviously, I am salivating at the thought of getting back to Fort Quincy to see my beloved Free Jacks in action, in person. And Super Rugby, ooh, it's going to be very very cool this year, especially looking forward to seeing some of the games in uh, in Fiji. That's going to be epic. So, my friends, as always, thanks again for coming along. To all of you across the globe, cheers. Talk to you soon. 
And of course, be well.